0: This is Dolly Parton's America. I'm Jad Abumran. We are at the second of nine trips into the Dollyverse. And in this one, I want to tell the story behind the greatest selling song by a female artist of all time. You probably know the song I'm talking about, but if you don't, I'm not going to tell you. It's just going to happen organically. It's going to be beautiful. But this is a song that hit number one in three consecutive decades. Think about that. One song just keeps hitting number one over and over. Well, behind that song are so many stories. The story of a collaboration, a historic collaboration, and the story of Dolly's grand metamorphosis.
1: I'm going to sit on this pillow. That one was better I for height. Oh, too. can you? Yeah, bring it up. Yeah. I'm so little, yeah. I don't feel like I'm sitting in the floor.
0: And maybe not just hers, but so many people. I talked about it with her back in Nashville in that studio.
1: My chair's squeaking.
0: On that squeaky chair. Um... We got to this story at, like, hour three of the interview. I'd love to ask you about Porter Wagner.
1: Okay. Now, that's when I needed a whip.
0: (laughs) 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 Earlier, uh, we'd been talking about rumors that she carried a gun in her purse.
1: (laughs) That's why I had the weapon. (laughs) No. Well, Porter Porter and I had a love-hate relationship. It was, you can't even begin to, you could never untangle all of that.
0: But we're going to try. Okay, so it's 1966. You're 21. Mm-hmm. Who was he at that time? I mean, for those of Porter
1: us... Porter I- Wagoner was and is a legend. <gasps> wow.
2: Thank you so much and welcome, Herr
1: Grandel. In country music.
3: Y'all come. Y'all come. Y'all come. Y'all come. The syndicated TV show has been one of the most popular in country music history. Porter
1: had the number one syndicated television show at that time
3: pull up
2: a chair and don't even move out of the room for the next 30 minutes
4: thank you porter put together a hell of a road show journalist historian robert orman when you went to see a porter wagoner show you got a show (laughs) (laughs) top-notch comedians top-notch singers and killer instrumentals the whole deal
5: and consider the fact
4: that cbs presents this
5: program in color This is when the advent of color television was kind of, you know, taking root in America.
0: This is country music singer-songwriter Marty Stewart. He worked with Porter toward the end of his life. Produced the last record he ever did.
5: Porter Wagner and his band would come on.
2: Thank you, gang, for helping me open up the show. And and those
5: pretty costumes. Bright blues, pinks, purples. (laughs) These beautiful costumes that were made by Nudie the Rodeo Taylor. Nudie suits, they were called. The
2: suit itself. Is about ten thousand three four hundred
1: dollars. Porter always dressed in rhinestones.
5: <laughs> he was a magical character because those rhinestone suits made him twinkle.
1: But also, he had great records and great songs. He had a great ear for music. He had one hit record after another.
0: Now, Dolly, at this moment, June seventh, nineteen sixty-seven.
1: You know, I was a young girl. I'm twenty-one years old now, and um, and I've been here three years new in Nashville at the time.
6: I got married a year ago, the 30th of last month, on Memorial Day last year.
0: She had, uh, as she says in this interview, just gotten married.
6: And my husband's name is Carl Dean, C-A-R-L-D-E-A-N.
0: To a guy named Carl, uh, who from that point until now has been seen in public like almost never.
6: And we have at least two or three songs placed a week.
0: In any case, at this point, 1967.
6: You know, the publishing company always checks to see who's in town, who's recording. So we pick out songs that we think would fit a certain artists, and then we take them and leave them.
0: Dolly was just one of this wave of songwriters. A thousand a week come through Nashville. Who were in Nashville trying to make it. What percentage ever make it?
2: Probably 1 100th of
0: 1%. That's how one record exec put it at the time.
1: And I was really having some major
7: hard times. She's just trying to get by. She's like stealing food scraps in hotel hallways off of deserted room service trays.
0: This is writer Sarah Smarsh.
7: Um, Stealing might be the wrong word. I don't know. Discarded food is how she she can't.
0: That's true that you did that?
7: Oh, plenty of times. I would get whatever looked
1: savable. And then I would get like a jar of mustard and a jar of ketchup. And you can work wonders with making little soups.
7: Yeah, she was like struggling those first few years in Nashville. The real money was in performing your songs, not just writing them.
0: At the time, as she describes in the interview, she was trying to make it as a performer, but the label that she was hooked up with, Monument Records, just thought that her voice. My
6: voice, the people that are familiar with the way I sing, my voice is pitched real high.
0: They just thought her voice was too high.
6: I wasted my tears when I cried over and it sounded, a lot of people thought it was childish, so they thought I might have a better chance than rock and roll.
0: Now, keep in mind, this is the same year that the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper, so you can hear that the label is trying to kind of shove her that direction. And it wasn't working out too well.
6: I've never had a pop hit. I had a song out called Happy Happy Birthday Baby that was the best thing I'd had, and it wasn't
7: even considered a hit at all.
0: But then, right before she did this interview in 1967, in fact,
7: I think it was the reason for the interview. Her big break comes, and she had a new single called Dumb Blonde.
6: Dumb Blonde. Don't try to cry. You way out of this.
1: Don't try to lie.
7: It's the story where she's. it's in the first person. She's telling a man to shove it rejecting the idea that because of how she looks she is stupid
0: For someone who has arguably been underestimated her whole career, the lyrics are pretty prophetic
6: and I'm blonde which was the biggest record I've ever had I myself, say it, it did real well for me
0: It wasn't a huge hit but a couple things happened. As a result of Dumb Blonde. She uh, performs the song on TV.
1: And I was right pretty then, even though I was tacky.
0: And shortly after that TV performance, she gets a call from the king of country himself, Porter Wagner. Yes. And so from what I understand, you run over to his office with your guitar thinking, he must just want me to write a song for his female singer.
1: Yeah. He had a girl on his show named Norma Jean Beasley. Pretty Miss
2: Norma Jean.
0: Who he almost always introduced that exact same way.
2: Pretty Miss Norma Jean.
1: Pretty Miss Norma Jean. She also
0: was a big recording artist. And Norma Jean's whole vibe was very Undolly. Beautiful, talented, but much more conservative, much more modest.
1: They had, uh, They had been working together for years.
0: Since the start of his show,
1: I had been sending songs to him and Norma Jean ever since I'd come to Nashville for them to record.
0: So she says when she got to his office, she got out her guitar, sang him a couple of songs that she thought would be great for Norma Jean. But he stops her.
1: Then he just told me that Norma Jean, she was leaving his show.
0: Why was she leaving?
1: Well, I don't know their personal story. Okay. I just know. Well, she, the story at that time that she was married, she was going to marry and move back to Oklahoma City.
0: The other version that's sometimes told is that he and Norma Jean had had an affair and things had gotten complicated.
1: He just told me that Norma was leaving the show and uh, would I be interested?
0: As he put it to her, would she be interested in being his new girl singer?
1: And then he quoted the price.
0: 60000 a year, more money than she'd ever seen in her life?
1: And I said yes.
0: Before we go further, let me just offer a little bit of context on the job that Dolly was walking
4: into. At the time... There was no such thing as a female headliner. Women were on the shows as decorative objects, as, you know, and here's a little song from our Pretty Little Girl singer. Not only that, according to Robert Orman, who has written a lot about this... The executives on Music Row historically have perceived the country music audience to be dominantly female. Then as now, they perceive the audience to be female. and They believe that women don't buy other women. They thought women only bought male artists? Correct. People that they could fantasize about. They thought that's what women consumed. Obviously, he says that is arguable at best. But that is uh,
0: what they thought. And so the job of the, quote, girl singer was to be sort of a surrogate for that adoring chorus of female fans that were out there that the execs believed were all fantasizing about Porter. That was Dolly's new job.
1: And so we started, uh, I started with him, I guess, in. Uh, howdy, neighbor, howdy. Get out and right in. Make a boy, What was it? 67? 67. 66?
0: Actually, it was on September 5th, 1967, and about 4 million people were watching.
1: How about it? Right now,
2: I want you to meet the little lady on our show. You know, Miss Norma Jean, that's been with us for many, many years had to leave our show because we work so much on the road and do so many tv shows to kind of have a little time at home for a personal life and i looked at a long time and thought of many many folks that uh, we all liked and thought that you would like and here's a little gal that i know you're going to really learn to love because she's a fine singer and one of the finest little gals that i've ever met Let's give her a great big welcome as she sings a song that she had a big hit on called Dumb Blonde. She ain't no Dumb Blonde though. Pretty Miss Dolly Parton. How about?
0: Dolly makes her first appearance on the Porter Wagner show wearing a crew cut bright red dress, red lipstick, hair in a beehive. Don't try to cry.
6: You're way out of this. Don't try to lie.
0: And I think it's safe to say that first performance didn't go well. After she finishes the song...
2: Mighty fine, Dolly. Come on over a minute. That is mighty, mighty nice. Thank you you a lot, and welcome to the show.
6: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: She kind of looks like she wants to run off the stage. We're
2: going to really enjoy working with you, and you wrote so many fine songs and sang so pretty, so we'll look forward to having you around a long, long time. Well,
6: I hope to be, and thank you very
1: much. So, uh, when I first started with Porter's show, people were still calling for Norman Jean. They didn't like me.
8: Dolly told me, I think her first road date with the Porter Wagner show, she came on stage and she they got booed. Wow.
0: This is Ralph Emery, country music DJ and longtime television host. Yes, they booed
1: Dolly. It's true.
8: When she came off stage, she was crying.
1: It was like, it was hard. and I was so look so
4: different than her. My voice was so different. When Dolly first arrived in Nashville, that was the whole critique. God, she's a great writer. God, she's beautiful, but she sings so weird. She sounds Minnie Mousey. How can we capture that on record? How can we make that commercial? Because it was so different. Different. Especially from Norma Jean.
0: When you love halfway Who had a much lower, richer voice. They didn't want... Yeah, I mean, there was... And Norma Jean had a huge following. And it was like, where's Norma Jean? In fact, that first show, uh, Dolly's first performance with Porter, after she sang the song Dumb Blonde...
2: We'll be right back in just a minute or so.
0: And they cut to commercial. you, You can tell something happened over that commercial break. Maybe the audience revolted. Not sure. But when they come back from break, and remember, these shows were live...
2: Thank you very much for watching that message, and... Uh, thank
0: Porter you. felt the need to speak directly to the studio audience. Was
2: talking with Dolly Parton a while ago, you know, and we were talking about Miss Norma Jean being gone, and uh, you never find anyone to replace someone. It's someone that actually is a star in their own right, and she's a wonderful little gal, and He
0: basically a- says to the audience, um, in this sort of paternal way, I...
4: I, I hear you. I see that you're upset. But no, we're doing this. Porter basically had to put his foot down with the fans and go, look, I'm, if she's good enough for me, she's good enough for you. And basically, you know, made them listen to Dolly. I sort of love him for that, despite everything. Yeah.
3: Thank you, Don.
0: So, so to deal with this backlash, Porter's first move was to shift the format of his show rather than... The usual thing of him doing a song and then having the female singer do a song.
1: In order to establish me because the people weren't responding to me that much.
2: Dolly and I going to do all duets this week.
3: Got a whole bunch of... Porter.
2: Porter.
1: We started doing duets. We did a duet called the Last Thing on My Mind. It was shot right to the top.
0: Everyone we talked to told us that from the very moment they started those duets. Well, it was magic. It was like
1: a like
2: this.
5: Fred and Ginger.
2: It's not, it's not right. right. glory, glory,
5: glory. John and June.
2: Thought you might
5: want to kiss me goodbye. Tracy and Catherine Heppern. There's just keep going with those kind of people who just clicked.
1: We had a great blend in our voices. I-
4: And I love that sound. There are two types of harmonies in country and rock, according to Robert Orman. One is Take a
1: message to
4: what I would call the Everly Brothers type harmony, which is close harmony, where the two voices are very close together.
1: To
4: and part of what's
0: cool about that style of duetting is that you can't tell the voices apart. The other type is
4: the Porter Dolly type. where they had very very distinct ranges their voices are not close together at all she sings melody he sings harmony but the harmony is mixed as hot as the lead vocal is so it sounds like two lead vocals
3: it's
4: interesting i mean how you're how you're
0: describing their singing style it's it's sort of perfectly matched for the content of their songs oh
4: yeah their dialogues male-female dialogues.
7: In which there's some kind of tension between lovers. It's a little bit creepy, to be honest.
2: You
7: know, he was old enough to be her dad. Almost exactly twice her age. She's at once sort of like So
2: sweet country woman, you wanna help me do a do it fatherly,
7: patronizing, talking about being her lover in a song.
6: Always, always.
0: Nonetheless, in terms of the task at hand of introducing Dolly to a new audience, it worked. It worked. It didn't just work, it killed.
1: We made history. Together
2: Now I want you to meet the beautiful little lady on our show, and she gets more popular, seems like, each week. Here's how it went out.
0: As soon as the duets got going... That audience did
2: reach out. They wrote letters. Thanks for all of the fine cards and letters and things that you have wrote
0: to her. and Lots of letters. Saying, I think we like her now. I know she appreciates it. And as soon as that started happening...
1: Porter insisted that I be on RCA, and then he... Did a whole deal to get me on RCA.
0: He uh, moved Dolly over to his label. They immediately go into the studio, record some duets. They record her second solo album, and I'm sorry. which he produces. They begin to tour the country, miss Dolly playing about 200 shows a year, doing live TV tapings, and after each
5: one... It was mandatory that they take their costumes off, get a cup of coffee, and gather up in the control room and watch what they had just done, almost as if it were like a game tape, you know, from a football game. And he told me, you know, how much Dolly didn't want to hear herself or see herself In the beginning I
1: have never liked to hear myself talk I've never liked to hear myself sing You've
5: never liked to hear yourself sing? No And he, and he, he actually pushed the issue that no, this is what we do That's how you learn
1: He was great on camera, had a great smile He knew how to talk to that audience I learned a lot
0: She says from those game tape sessions, she learned how to hold herself on stage, how to make eye contact with the camera.
1: How to kind of communicate with an audience, even like how to smile when we were doing album covers or doing pictures.
0: Now, as Dolly was learning the ropes, I think it's worth saying that country music around this time was undergoing a dramatic change. I mean, it started as this mostly Southern phenomenon, but during those years that Dolly and Porter were working together, there was a huge migration of people out of the rural South into the Northeast, Midwest, West, into urban areas, and they took country music with them.
3: Country music is getting bigger and bigger these days. In 1961,
2: 80 radio stations across the nation were called country music stations. Well, today that number is over 1,000.
0: Point is, as Dolly was being introduced to the world, that world was expanding. And in fact, in 1967, 68, the country music industry was like, we're getting so big that we need our own awards show. And in October of 68,
2: from the home of the world-renowned Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee,
0: at the second ever Country Music Awards,
2: vocal of the year, Porter, Wagner, and Dolly. Palmer.
0: Porter and Dolly win vocal group of the year. Two years later,
2: Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton.
0: They win it again, the next year too, and by 1972...
2: Here's the top singing duo in the country music field. Ladies and gentlemen, Porter Wagner and Dolly
0: Parton. It's just clear that in this new kingdom of country music, they are the royal couple. And by the way, at every award they win, they walk up there together, his arm draped around her. He accepts the award.
2: Thank you, everyone, very much. This year there were so many great duet teams. That... And
0: Dolly doesn't speak. Thank you. Thank God you. bless you. you. Producer Shimoli, I asked Dolly about this.
9: We're very, like, quiet at first. So wh- how well, did that? I had to
1: be quiet around Porter, because Porter was the star. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> allowed to say a lot. <laughs> or I didn't think that it was my place to try to take within his show. It wasn't really something I would to stand out and do yeah. that's just not you didn't do that as a woman and you didn't do that as a professional person and it was his show not mine
0: yeah.
1: till i went out on my own till like i say till i claimed and owned myself
0: yeah. now speaking of claiming and owning oneself there are a million moments that you can point to where dolly did that but one in particular that came up a bunch of times in our interviews Happened in 1970. Dolly and Porter had been together for three years. They'd released five albums of duets together. Porter had released eight solo albums and produced all four of her solo albums, most of which were those slow, mournful ballads that we talked about.
8: And uh, one time we are on the bus. This is Buck Trent. He played
0: banjo in Porter's band.
8: On tour, and Porter said, Dolly, you need to write some up-tempo songs for the show. As in, enough sad-ass songs. And just off the top of my head, for some reason... I'll see what I can play, yeah. I said, how about the Muse Skinner Blues? They said, well, hey, we may try that. So we get in the studio. Norma, I mean, Dolly was just killing the song. Porter had the whip, I mean a real whip, in the studio and he's popping the whip. And
6: much, run. Hey, hey, yeah.
8: It is cooking, it is cooking. Good <laughs> it's got one of the best rhythm tracks of all time.
0: And it was a big hit. First of all, Buck Trent is right. The song is Dolly's first top five hit. It got to number three. Second, hey, hey, the song is just fire. It's just fire. It's so good.
1: Make any and
0: third, many Dollyologists like Jocelyn Neal, professor of music at the University of North Carolina, will tell you that this song marks a turning point.
3: So just think- that she releases before mule skinner blues are from the voice of little girls they are fragile and they are all these perspectives of vulnerability i mean daddy come and get me my man has put me in a mental institution is not a position of social power
0: but after mule skinner she says her songs are totally different
3: rhythmic percussive and then the rest as you get to tell in your podcast is history
0: We'll tell the rest of that history after the break. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery. 50 high school senior girls descend on Mobile, Alabama every summer to compete for a massive cash prize. It isn't Survivor. It's one of America's most lucrative scholarship competitions for teen girls. It's been around for seven decades. Now you'll hear what took place behind the scenes. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery comes the competition. This is Dolly Barnes America. I'm Jad Abumrad. Let's pick back up with the story. Uh, let's sing, uh, Mil- Anything you Milwaukee. want to
2: it, this is your show.
6: Remember. Oh, well, we're gonna do Mealwalk. We Milwaukee,
0: talked about Mule Skinner, Milwaukee. Big Moment. Around this time, well, a
6: okay. <laughs> okay.
0: couple things start to happen.
6: Well, I'm, I'm gonna,
2: gonna get on, get on, on old turnpike park
6: and I'm gonna
0: fly. Personality-wise,
2: oh, oh, I got excuse me, it was really
6: on my show.
0: On the TV, you begin to see a different dolly <laughs> emerge, sort of a dolly we know. Shape up Not the quote-unquote shy one. Well, the whole part about being
5: shy, I mean, I would. she's the kind of person that hits me that would have, you know, the minute she was born, she shook hands with the doctor, signed an autograph, and started dancing for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was basically, you know, kind of holding back in the early days.
0: After Mule Skinner, she kind of stops doing that. The second thing that happens around this moment is that behind the scenes... Dolly is writing songs at a blistering pace. If you look at her discography, 69, 70, 71, 72, it's just one song after another, after another. There's Joshua, her first number one, Coat of Many Colors, My Blue Tears, Touch Your Woman, Daddy Was an Old Time Preacher Man. One of Porter's best songwriters, Mel Tillis, was quoted as saying he couldn't keep up. Like he would submit one song and she would submit three. I mean, we're going down the road on the bus. And she's
8: writing Jolene and I'll always love you in no time at all.
3: I remember her scribbling. She wrote one of her songs, I can't remember which one right now, on one of my dad's dry cleaner ticket.
0: This is Deborah Wagner, Porter Wagner's daughter.
3: She grabbed that off of that, (laughs) that (laughs) rhinestone suit where he had the plastic with the ticket on it for the dry cleaning. Matchbox, uh, candy bar wrapper, napkins at restaurants. I've seen her do, I saw her do that. All these songs, all these songs
1: well i was so excited and everybody was paying attention to me as a writer and that inspired me Mm. so i wanted to really um really do more because i saw that people were paying attention but during that time my husband carl and i had bought our our first house and there was a den and a big fireplace and i remember i wrote jolene and i will always love you the same night when we oh. found a tape, I don't know if it's the same night, but it was on the same cassette that we found. I thought that must have been a really good wow. night. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So um, I just would sit for hours in that little room, and and write songs and play. And
0: as she was telling me this, I was reminded of something that uh, journalist Robert Orman had told us on the phone.
4: If she had been born in a different era, she she's Mozart. She was touched by something.
1: Love is like a butterfly wrote during that same period of time as well. All
4: right,
0: let's go to 1973. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. October 31st of that year.
2: I know you uh, write all kinds of songs and all types of songs, and I think this is possibly the most different tune and sort of the different sound of any of the songs that you've ever
0: written. Dolly debuts her new song on The Porter Wagner Show.
1: Well, it is kind of different. It kind of makes you think of an old folk song that's kind of got a little heavier, up-to-date beat. I
0: think you
2: really like this. Listen close to it. It's called Jolene.
0: Starting in
6: 1973 with
0: Jolene, Dolly would churn out four consecutive number ones in roughly a year. During that time,
4: Porter's solo stuff was hovering around the 40s. You have to appreciate also threat to his ego that she represented by this point because at this period in time his his era on the charts his time was was getting to be up
1: I started getting real big
4: her star was shooting and his was sinking
1: and Porter was having a lot of problems with that
4: Dolly told me that when
0: it came time for them to record Jolene in the studio Porter wouldn't let her play the guitar
1: he wanted to impress the uh, musicians with that lick And so I remember Porter trying to teach it to the, the the guitar players on that session, and it was not coming out right at all. And I remember I was just getting more upset and more upset, so I remember just getting the guitar from Porter and said, I, let me just show them the lick.
0: You write in your autobiography that the bigger you got, the more threatened he got.
1: Yeah, well, that's natural, because it was his show. When it got to where I was wanting to have other producers I wanted to expand. I wanted to have crossover records, and I wanted to have management where I could do other, you know. And I told him, I said, if you'll let me, I can stay in the show if you'll let me have my own things. I can. We can still work within the show. Let me get a manager and a, and a producer to do some other things outside of what we're doing. I'm not trying to take anything from you or me. I'm just wanting to expand. If if I can do some things, if you'll let me do some stuff within the show, we can still, you know, salvage this and it'll just make your show bigger and it'll make us bigger and better. He couldn't handle it, though. And so, and I understand that. So. How,
0: why? why? Why would you understand well, that? Well, I can't
1: speak for him. Yeah. I'm speaking for me. You're not talking to Porter. You're talking to me. Of
0: course. But um, <laughs> it's the understanding that I guess I'm asking a question about. Uh, this is a guy, I mean, you see it in the videos, too. He's got his arm around you. It, it, there's, a, there's a power thing happening, for sure.
1: Well, it's more complicated sure. than that. It's just, I mean, just think about it. He had had this show for years. He, had, he didn't need me to have his hit show. He wasn't expecting me to be all that I was, either. When he hired me as a singer, he was just hiring what he thought was a right, pretty little girl. But I was a serious writer. He didn't know that. I was a serious entertainer. He didn't know that. I mean, he, he didn't know how many dreams I had. Huh. It was just one of those relationships where you hated him one day, you loved them the next, and it just got so intermingled and so wadded up that you, don't, you didn't even know what your real feelings were. I don't know. It was, almost, it was just crazy. It was like a marriage of a sort. You couldn't even begin to describe it all.
0: Throughout the years, people have speculated that there might have been more going on between them behind the scenes. Well, uh, probably.
8: Hmm. Probably. You never knew much, but uh, probably. Even members of
0: the band wondered.
2: Is Porter running around with Dolly, or is he having an affair with Dolly Parton?
0: This is Porter on The Ralph Emery Show.
2: Well, would you care to speak to that? There's so many answers to that, Ralph. You know, really, there's probably about as many answers as there are people asking questions about that.
1: Any relationship is like a house with an upstairs. It's got two stories.
0: And this is how Dolly addressed those rumors in her autobiography.
1: I know that everybody that knows anything about me and Porter would like to know the true story of what happened to us. Nobody would like to know that more than me and Porter.
0: In any case, this next part, this is the point in the story where you can tell it several different ways. For writer Sarah
7: Smarsh, it sounds very much like an abusive relationship.
0: This is a classic abuse story. She says, "If you scroll through their YouTube performances from 1973-74, this is when Dolly and Porter have been working together for about 7 years." You see these moments.
7: And there's this moment where um, she's got her guitar. He's going to play on their next duet. So he's sort of suggesting, like, Why don't you drop your guitar? Because now, as the man, I'm going to be the one strumming the strings. And um, she's like, i just
6: hang on to it.
7: I'll just hold on to it.
1: I need a security blanket. <laughs>
7: like, nope, I'm good, you son of a bitch, you know? <laughs>
0: Sarah points to another moment, same episode. Sang one of her great songs. She Porter's doing an intro, Dolly's off screen. She probably knows Bill Cheatham. And she sort of butts in with a joke.
1: I don't know no Bill Cheatham. Shut up.
0: <laughs> he tells her to shut up, and his face definitely falls for a moment. Micro-expression, rage.
2: We're back again.
1: Right back here. Me and my sidekick here, she just kicked me in the side. Uh. <laughs>
6: Not yet, but
2: I think I will after that. Uh, if you ever hit me and I find it out,
1: Dolly
7: Parton. He you'll be just makes these casual jokes about physically harming her. I ought to box your jaws. Oh, you'd hit your mama
1: before you hit me. You
7: and that know, um, reminded me of a, the statistics that tell us that when when a woman is about to leave an abusive relationship, that that is when violence escalates. Is that you guys
0: doing a shtick or? Is that actual hostility?
7: Oh, way too many things
1: to ever untangle all of that. You
2: and me cannot agree cause I love the fighting kind.
0: Now, to be clear, I don't think there's anything here that would suggest actual physical abuse happened, but clearly they went at each other in every other way.
1: We just did not, we just went like that. You know, I was so stubborn and he's so definite in who he is.
5: Well, the thing about Porter, and this is, this is where you hit humanity, is that The times, you know, and and so many country singers had the pretty little girl singer on their show around Nashville. And they were kind of lord and master and whatever they say went.
2: If you work for me, you're going to do what I say or you're not going to work for me. That's right. Right? Right.
0: This is Porter being interviewed by Herb Sudson on his show Sudson Country.
2: I'm not hiring an advisor to come in. That's right. I'm hiring someone to work for me. I sign the check. I pay them. Because I love Dolly. She's a beautiful lady in every respect. But it don't matter if my mama is working on my show. Mama's going to do what Porter says.
5: And um, there was no questions asked. Well, anybody that knows anything about her knows that that ain't how it works with her.
1: He would say, this is my damn show. I say, I know, but this is my damn life. And we're not talking about the show. I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about my future. I can't stay here as the girl singer forever. I want an individual career. I am my own self. I didn't come to Nashville to be just part of a duet and to be a girl singer in somebody's group. I want my own band. I want my own show. I want my own dreams. I want my own... But it was like, well, I made you. And I said, well, yeah, you've made me mad again. You've made (laughs) me a lot of things. (laughs) And I'm not taking anything from you, I would say. I appreciate everything you've done, but I never promised you forever. And we just were not not happy. Either of us were not happy.
0: Was there a, a breaking point that you can recall?
1: Yeah, I just finally just... I thought, I'm going to break myself if I don't go, because all we were doing was fighting. And it just wasn't working. I couldn't even, I couldn't think. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. And he wasn't happy either. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is just insane. We've got to do something. So that's when I went in and said, you know, I thought, well, he's not going to listen. We'd fought, and I'd go home crying. And so that's when I wrote I Will Always Love You and uh, went back to sing it.
0: The Story goes, as every Dolly fan knows, she walked right into his office, told him to sit down, and she just sang it to him.
6: of the way
1: And so he sat and he was sitting in the chair and he started crying. And then he said, well, that's the best song you ever wrote. I said, well, you inspired it. He said, well, I guess you can go if I can produce the record. I said, "Okay, you can.
3: My father, she had to stand up to him like a lot of us women do to get our way. She left an influence on me to speak your mind. Mm. And if you're, you're hurting, let others know. And if you're loving, let them know that, too. Deborah
0: Wagner says she was inspired by what Dolly did, even though it was her father on the other end of it. And it's interesting to consider that this was a moment in America when the divorce rate was doubling, when you had all of these no-fault divorce laws popping up all around the country. This was a moment when women could finally leave.
7: It, she describes it as like, um, I mean, honestly, I... I um, uh was previously married and when i it, initiated a divorce i it, the way that she talks about that moment again this is not to suggest they had a romantic relationship but that there was some sort of like this this uh, like almost spiritual tether between them that she was deciding for her own survival she was going to leave and she describes it in terms that i was like oh i remember that feeling
0: This is from her autobiography.
1: As I left his office and began to drive toward my home out in Brentwood, it began to rain. So did I. I cried. Not so much out of a sense of loss, but from the pain that almost always comes with change. It has a sad kind of freedom. Then I began to sing a song
6: to myself. It's been a long, dark night, and I've been waiting for the morning
1: been a long hard fight, but I see a brand new day a dawning. I've been looking for the sunshine. I ain't seen it in so long. Everything's gonna work out just fine. Everything's gonna be all right. It's been all wrong. I can see the light of a clear blue morning. And I swear to you on my life, as I said that, the sky cleared up, it stopped raining, the sun came out, and before I got home, I had completely written the song called Light of a Clear Blue Morning. It was like God saying, okay, you're free to go now, so just make the most of it. Yeah. And that was my first song of my freedom.
0: It's amazing to me that even in that moment, it becomes a song almost immediately.
1: Well, that's how I do things. That's how I deal with my hurt.
0: As reporter... He went and spent six weeks sitting by a lake by himself.
5: Well, I think when Dolly left, and you know, at so many levels, I have no doubt in my mind that Dolly was the love of Porter's life. (laughs) Uh, She's irreplaceable. Don Warden was irreplaceable. Don Warden, by the way, was Porter's right-hand
0: man.
3: He was my dad's best friend. He was uh, the man in the music business my dad trusted the very most.
0: He would also leave and go with dolly key
5: musician in the band named buck trent who was kind of the band leader he left and went with roy clark's show and so porter was just kind of capsized after all those years of being the king and i think his ego was bruised i think his heart was broke
7: so uh he basically then went on a um a public spree of character defamation
2: To me, Dolly Parton is the kind of person that I would never trust with anything of mine. I mean, her family, her own blood. She would turn her back on to help herself. Telling
7: anyone who would listen that Dolly Parton was a horrible person who he wouldn't trust further than he could throw.
2: I don't care about talking about it because most people would think I'm bitter You at Dolly. I'm not bitter at her at all. Dolly wants to to do everything that is possible for her. She lives in a in a
1: fairy land. Anyhow, I left and Porter sued me for a million dollars.
0: He sued you for a million dollars?
1: Because, see, we didn't really, I didn't, um, he sued me because of what I had done to his show. Hmm. I don't remember exactly what all the legalities were, but he thought he was my manager. He was suing me for, for like future royalties, you know, because I had signed, uh, I don't even know what all. I was young and silly, but...
0: I know Porter in court would claim that Dolly was the reason he canceled his road show. He would claim, and this is true, that they had signed a contract saying that if she left his show, he was entitled to a percentage of her earnings, that if she left his show, he was entitled to manage her for five years, and that during that time, she couldn't enter into any contract concerning her musical career without his written approval. He claimed that she was now trying to minimize... His stake in their production company that they own together. In fact, he would claim in court that Dolly broke into the offices of that production company, stole 130 demos of music. These were demos that mostly she had written, but she stole them, and now she was off making uh, albums with some of those songs. And he was entitled to some of that money.
1: And so um, he sued me.
0: Dolly decided to settle.
1: I didn't have a million dollars. Took me years to pay him back. He just did that out of anger, though, I think.
0: She doesn't like to dwell on this particular chapter, and neither apparently does anyone else in Nashville.
5: I think everybody in this town understands the art of a good hillbilly divorce. (laughs) So (laughs) you don't pick sides. You love everybody and just listen. Mm -hmm. That was always been. But I know it must have been awful for both of them.
1: But as years went by, we made up. Mm. later he said, "That's the worst thing I ever done. I'm so sorry I did that. He told me that. Wow. He said, I just was, you know, hurt and
0: angry. What I find most amazing about the story is how it ends. Like we've all seen so many bad divorces, right? And the good thing about a divorce is that unhappy people can walk away from an unhappy thing. But so often that's not what happens. People get stuck in the ugly part, but not here. Dolly pays him the million dollars over time. Then in 1981, Porter gets dropped from his label, RCA, and then Dolly hears that he's made some bad investments and the IRS has come after him, saying that he owes them half a million dollars.
1: He did fall on hard times and he needed the money and by at that time I had money. And so he he Porter had started writing after I was writing a lot. Porter had never written before. And so he started writing. He wrote some really good songs too. And so... After he was having some hard times, I thought, well, a good way for me to do that is just to uh, to buy the publishing company. So I bought it, and then I just gave it back to him because I wanted his kids to have it. I didn't want wow. it. Wow. But that was my gift, one of my gifts for thanking him, too. Because, see, I never knew. How do you ever know how to thank somebody or what you owe somebody? Because who knows, had it not been for Porter, I may not be sitting right here in this chair right now. Because that was, you know, I'd like to believe I would have made it. But because I felt bad that I had to go, but I knew I had to go or I was stifled. And by that time, I would just, if I'd have stayed forever, I might have missed my chance. And God was telling me to go. That spirit of mine was saying, go. You've got to go. You've got to go. At that time, it's not like putting flowers on me. It was the least that I could do. I felt like it was all right. That was, to me, the thing to do. Hmm. And so I was glad to do it. It made me feel better about everything else.
0: I have a theory that um, one of the reasons that you can have the crazy broad appeal that you have into so many different communities that normally hate each other is because of those acts of forgiveness. Does that well, vibe with you?
1: Yeah, that I, forgiveness, forgiveness is all there is.
0: Porter Wagner died on October 28th, 2007 in a hospice facility in Nashville.
5: And I do know for a fact, and this tells it all right here, that one of the last people he saw on this earth was a girl named Dolly. And she was there holding his hand by his bed and, you know, give it him water.
0: When you saw him a few hours before he died, what, uh, what, did, what did you speak about?
1: Well, I asked everybody to go out, and I just talked to him myself. Porter was not—I knew he could hear me, but he was not able to talk to me. But I could tell, and he could touch my hand and you know squeeze a little bit and i just told him that i loved him and i appreciated him and i said i was sorry for all the things we had been through and i was so happy that we had become friends again and that uh, i would always remember and treasure him you know we had a, a special bond and i was happy that i was there
0: Dolly Parton's America was produced and written and edited by me and Shima Oliai brought to you by Awesome Audio that's O-S-M-Audio and WNYC Studios we had production help from W. Harry Fortuna original music from Nathan Fake Courtney Hartman Steph Jenkins and Stephanie Coleman thanks to the folks at Sony Music the Country Music Association the team at the Country Music Hall of Fame Herb Sutson Harry Willen from the documentary Nashville Sound and the Everett Corbin Collection at the Center for Popular Music special thanks to Peter at HarperCollins Lynn Sacco, Danny Nezell, David Dotson, Sam Haskell, Teresa Hughes, Pat Walters, Lula Miller, Susie Lechtenberg, and Soren Wheeler. And as always, thank you to my dad. More from him coming soon. We have uh, partnered with Apple Music to bring you companion playlists to each of the episodes, and we're updating it every week. You can find that at dollypartonsamerica.org. Before we go, one more... One more word on that song.
10: It has been called the love song of the century. You know, you see this song being performed on Idol and The Voice and all this. It's one of the go to songs. And
3: but
0: I know.
10: if somebody performs the song even half decently,
0: I'll think of
6: you
10: the crowd goes crazy. <laughs> because when it gets to that big part. And if the singer can just even barely make that big part, and they're going to get a round of applause. We call it the boom and I moment. And boom and I. It's the boom and I moment, right? This is David Foster. He is one of the main reasons that I Will Always Love You became the love song of the century. I was the lucky guy that got to produce I Will Always Love You for Whitney Houston and the Bodyguard. He spoke
0: with uh, producer Shimoli Yai. Yes. She's going to take us out with this brief story of an encounter between David, Dolly, Whitney, and Glory.
9: So here's how it went down. It's 1991. They're making the movie. I've been watching you all night from across the room. Why
2: don't you go back there and keep watching?
9: That's Kevin Costner. He and Whitney Houston star in the movie. As I'm sure you know, Mm -hmm. Kevin Costner actually produced the movie. So he asked David to jump on board to create the soundtrack. So David had to write all these songs for different scenes for Whitney to sing. But the finale song had not been decided. So they do a search. One other song comes up. They record it. It doesn't quite work. They find another song. It's not. Nothing's working. It's actually Kevin Costner. The hero that he is calls up David Foster (laughs) and goes, "David, I have an idea." Yeah. Side note: Do you are you still in contact with Kevin Costner by any chance?
10: It's funny that you should say that because I called him yesterday.
9: Oh no way! You know Kevin
10: was so musical.
9: Let me be the name you whisper.
10: He has a band. He plays. He sings. He loves country music. He loves country rock.
9: Anyway, he calls David and he says, "You know that scene we're gonna do at the end of the movie, the big scene with Whitney." I think I have the perfect song.
10: He did. He said, I've got it. I want to do this song, I Will Always Love You. And you'll do the big version at the end, and it'll be great. And I think that I pretended that I knew the song, but I'd never heard that song before. (laughs) So I sent somebody down to the record store in Malibu, and the only version they could find was Linda
9: Ronstadt's version. 1975.
3: If I should stay...
10: I knew immediately that I could kill this song. And when you see it in the movie with the, she's getting on the plane and then she stops and she comes back out and hugs him and you know they're in love, but they're never going to be together. It's
9: such a good scene. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Whitney, Kevin, David, they go to shoot the scene.
10: We were recording the song live because the director wanted that live feeling.
9: Is it that scene where... Whitney's on stage in that hotel. Yes. And at what point did you tell Dolly that you're gonna do her song?
10: I clearly remember going back to my room.
9: Back to his hotel room. He calls Dolly. He's all excited.
10: And she was like, Oh, that's great news. I love Whitney, you know? She said, I can't wait to hear her sing that part, you know, um, the you know, the third verse. And I'm going like, third verse? There's no, <laughs> no. third verse in this song.
9: Now the third verse, it's the one where she talks. I hope live.
6: Treats you kind.
9: Directly to Porter.
6: And I hope that you have all that you ever dreamed of.
10: Dolly was like, no, you have to do the third verse. The third verse has everything in it. It's it's the wrap-up of the whole song. It's the most meaningful lyric. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Linda Ronstadt had not done the third verse. I got to go back and listen to that Linda Ronstadt version and make sure that I'm right. Can you play it?
9: Yeah, I think I can play it. I her. mean,
10: like, like, move in, like, one minute.
9: Yeah, yeah, I'm going to, I'm skipping this ad.
10: You don't pay for your YouTube?
9: I'm going to play it for both of us. Oh, I don't hear the third one.
10: They're playing it instrumentally.
9: Oh, yeah, you are so right, right, David.
10: Now what happens? A chorus comes in?
9: Yep. Now the chorus.
10: No third verse.
9: So he's like, damn it, Linda. Gets off the phone with Dolly, <laughs> runs back to where they're shooting the scene, and says, guys, we got to do the third verse, the Porter verse. You just like gave Whitney the lyrics. We got to do this third verse.
10: We had to go back in and, and record it again.
0: And I
3: wish you joy
10: That's my favorite part of the song.
9: Joy. Did you have any idea of the worldwide impact that it's still the number one recorded song by a female artist of all time?
10: No, in fact, I didn't even know that stat. But I was standing there when she was singing it and her mom walked over to me. She said, you're witnessing greatness right now. Then she walked away.
9: know how you talked about how Dolly paid a million dollars to Porter mm-hmm. in one year of the release of this song, she reportedly made three times that,
10: and she's thanked me more than once, you know, making jokes about it, bought me my house here and got me my this there.
9: and
3: sweet <laughs>
10: Dolly, if you're listening to this, this is David Foster. <laughs> please make the time to have lunch with me sometime.
0: On the next episode of Dolly Parton's America. No! My mom Shut up. No! Are you going to take us? Do you want to go? Oh my God, yes! yes! Oh my God, Brian! <laughs> no. We pilgrimage to Dollywood and end up in a Tennessee mountain time warp.